Episode 24, Awakening, the Unseen Parasite. In the hushed and soft-lit solitude of her private Sheffield clinic, Dr Elizabeth Liz Clark was locked in an intense solitary struggle against the formless, clandestine adversary. This foe was not a disease chronicled in medical journals, nor a syndrome elucidated by her esteemed peers. Rather, it was a phantom that lurked unseen, casting an inexplicable pallor across the minds of ordinary individuals she encountered in her daily practice. As a distinguished neurologist in a Britain grappling with the impacts of a Bitcoin-fueled economy in a recessionary climate, Liz was more than adept at navigating the labyrinthine intricacies of the human brain. More than that, she possessed an intuitive acuity for discerning patterns and connections in a sea of apparent randomness, a talent that proved to be both a boon and a curse. It was an unusually frosty Tuesday, even for England, when Liz found herself poring over an array of patient records displayed on her high-definition screen. Each file told a story, echoing the same set of peculiar symptoms that couldn't be ascribed to a recognised neurological disorder. Emotional detachment, a disturbing decline in motivation, a pervasive apathy towards the vibrancy of life. These signs were painting a picture that was becoming harder and harder to ignore. The patterns were unmistakable, the similarities too many to dismiss as mere coincidence. Despite the casual attributions to melancholia, the blues, or chronic fatigue syndrome by her colleagues, a persistent guttural instinct within her couldn't shake off the feeling that there was something more sinister at play here. As Liz delved deeper into the data sprawled before her, she felt an uncomfortable knot of anxiety in her chest. Her heart pounded with a strange mix of fear and exhilaration, knowing full well she was inching closer to an unseen precipice. The silence of the clinic was punctuated only by the mechanical humming of her state-of-the-art equipment and the rhythmical ticking of the wall clock creating an eerie symphony that underscored the gravity of her pursuit. The sound of her name snapped Liz out of her contemplative reverie as her assistant's voice sliced through the quietude of the clinic. Liz, are you ready? The Robertson's party's in an hour. The sudden intrusion of reality into her introspective world was jarring, yet she was aware that this party was an essential part of the social fabric that tied her family together. As the morning unfolded, the sounds of carefree merriment cascaded through the expansive Robertson garden. Parents congregated in scattered clusters, exchanging casual chit-chat, their laughter adding a rich undertone to the symphony of the party. Amid the swirling vortex of joy and disarray, Liz found herself tucked away in a quieter corner, a glass of velvety red wine in her hand, her gaze fixed on her own children, the vivacious Sam, and the increasingly introspective Rebecca. Sarah Robertson, the effervescent hostess, subtly manoeuvred her way through the crowd and appeared beside Liz. A sense of worry was thinly veiled behind her usually bright eyes, and her voice carried a note of concern that was not lost on Liz. You know, Liz, she started, her gaze steady. I've noticed something strange with my Jenny. Oh? Liz's gaze shifted from her children to Sarah. What's going on? Sarah sighed. 
her eyes betraying a mother's worry. It started around the time we got the dog. Jenny changed, becoming less enthusiastic, less her. At first I chalked it up to teenage mood swings, but it feels like she's fading, losing herself somehow. Liz took a moment to absorb Sarah's words. The pattern she had been observing was not limited to her patience, and it hit far closer to home than she realised. It's like she's lost in a fog, Sarah continued, her gaze wandering over to where her daughter Jenny was half-heartedly participating in a game of tag. She's there, but not there, if you know what I mean. Liz turned her gaze back to her own children, a bemused smile tugging at her lips. It's as if they've wandered behind a mask, isn't it? The clarity of their existence muddled by inexplicable cloudiness. Sarah blinked, taken aback by the frankness. I, I suppose that's one way to put it. Liz chuckled softly. Sorry, I tend to think in abstracts. But I understand what you're saying, Sarah. It's like watching someone you love transform into a dali landscape, still recognisable, but subtly twisted, altered. The two women shared a moment of silent understanding, their jovial surroundings a stark contrast to the sombre conversation. The evening gradually gave way to night, and the party wound down. The observations lingered in Liz's mind. In the subsequent days, the surrealist analogy gnawed persistently at Liz's mind, a spectre refusing to fade into the shadows. Even the most mundane interactions, from routine consultations with her patients, to stolen moments of quiet with her daughter Rebecca, were cast under the disquieting light of this new perspective. A veil seemed to have been lifted, revealing an altered reality that was as unnerving as it was compelling. The changes she noticed were subtle, but unmistakable. A persistent apathy, a creeping disinterest, a slow but steady retreat from the vibrancy of life. It was as if her patience, her own flesh and blood, were gradually blurring at the edges, their once vivid personalities fading into the pastel hues of a Monet masterpiece. It was at a bustling neurology conference in the heart of London that she found herself sharing these observations with fellow neurologist Dr Martin Hayes. Hayes, a stalwart in the field of neuroscience, had carved a niche for himself through the extensive work of abnormal psychological patterns. As he sipped his lukewarm coffee, his eyes trained on Liz, he hummed thoughtfully, the steady cadence of his contemplation punctuating their conversation. As she articulated her concerns to Hayes, Liz found herself spiralling down a rabbit hole of conjectures. Could there be an external factor causing this? A virus, perhaps? The world has seen its share of pandemics, each leaving its indelible mark on the human psyche. Could they be dealing with a similar situation? A viral invasion that was altering the very essence of their neural circuitry, slowly eroding their passion for life, their curiosity, their drive. Her heart pounded in her chest at the enormity of the situation. The questions were many, the answers elusive, but Liz knew she was onto something, something that had the potential to change their understanding of the human mind. Many of my patients display similar symptoms, Liz, Martin mused, his gaze distant. You could be onto something here, a new variant of depression perhaps, or something more sinister.
Liv offered a wry smile, the bitter taste of her tea matching her scepticism. Or perhaps we're living in a Kafkaesque horror story, Martin, where we're slowly transforming into beetles, unnoticed by the world around us. Martin chuckled at the remark, unaware that in the depth of Liz's thoughts, she was already formulating a plan to investigate further. This surrealist painting was beginning to morph into a reality far more disturbing than she had ever imagined. Weeks turned into months, and Liz's worries only deepened. Rebecca had started to show the same signs Sarah had mentioned about Jenny. She was present yet absent, almost as if she were living in a pre-programmed life. One evening, while tucking Rebecca into bed, Liz couldn't help but voice her concern. Sweetheart, you've been a bit quiet lately. Is everything all right? Rebecca gave her a blank stare, her eyes empty. I'm fine, I'm fine, Mum, she replied, her tone devoid of the usual spark that once defined her. Something cold coiled in Liz's stomach at her daughter's indifferent response. The chasm between them was growing, and Liz was at a loss on how to bridge it. It was as if an invisible force was steadily draining the life out of her lively daughter, turning her into a stranger. Taking action, Liz embarked on a journey of intense investigation, trawling through the labyrinthine archives of obscure medical journals, engaging in fervent discussions with fellow psychologists, neurologists, and even crossing disciplines to confirm that entomologists should have met at an interdisciplinary medical conference. A recurring theory suggested by her peers was the impact of the recent Bitcoin bear market recession. It had left the world in an economic downturn, the likes of which were unfamiliar in this new era of a post-Bitcoin standard. This financial crisis was a relatively foreign concept in a world accustomed to the stability provided by a decentralised digital currency, and the abrupt upheaval could have left a deep psychological scar on the collective psyche, birthing a global wave of depression. However, Liz found herself unsatisfied with this explanation. The symptoms she observed were not typical of depression. There was an undercurrent of something more insidious at play. She was convinced that they were overlooking a vital piece of the puzzle, and it was her responsibility to unearth it. At her clinic, Liz studied her patients with renewed scrutiny, her interactions evolving from doctor-patient consultations to detective-like interrogations. To the world outside, she was Dr Elizabeth Clark, a meticulous neurologist attending to her patients with an undeterred professionalism. But beneath that veneer, she was a sleuth in a white lab coat, her mind buzzing with hypotheses and deductions, determined to solve the mystery of this perplexing apathy that was inexplicably casting its net wider by the day. As word about the unusual epidemic spread through the undercurrents of society, it fanned the flames of speculation, giving rise to a myriad of conspiracy theories. Whispers about the enigma wafted through dimly lit pubs, overheard in crowded train stations, and ricocheted off the virtual walls of internet forums. There were outlandish theories suggesting clandestine agencies were poisoning the population. 
tales of government-instigated chemtrail operations tainting the air we breathe, and rumours of insidious substances contaminating the water supply. Despite the growing public unrest and increased demand for answers, the government was unyielding in its stance. They were quick to dismiss the conjectures, categorical in their denial of the existence of such a health crisis. This official response, however, only served to augment the aura of suspicion and unease that was fast spreading through the nation. It added another twist to the labyrinthine enigma that Liz was fervently attempting to decipher. The public dismissal didn't dissuade Liz. In fact, it only hardened her resolve, intensifying her quest for answers. Beneath the hum of conspiracy theories and government denials, she could sense the steady rhythm of truth, waiting to be uncovered. It was like a code buried deep in the human psyche, encrypted but not impenetrable. She just needed to find the right key. Liz knew she needed help. It was time to reach out to some non-traditional sources, the outliers of the medical community who might be willing to entertain her suspicions. She had to, but Rebecca, she had to find the answers, whatever it took. As weeks slipped by, Liz found herself visiting different corners of Sheffield and London, going where her investigations led her. She met with teachers, lawyers, grocery store clerks, people from all walks of life. Many had the same far-off look that had come to haunt her dreams, their eyes vacant as if someone had snuffed out the spark that once animated them. At a busy London coffee shop, Liz met a high school teacher, Jane, who was grappling with her once vibrant students turning indifferent. As Jane shared their experiences, Liz found herself watching her hands, once expressive, now only stirring her coffee listlessly. Her once sparkling eyes looked tired, lifeless. It's like they're here physically, Jane confessed, looking into her coffee cup. But mentally, they're just not. It's like trying to reach someone through a dense fog. Liz sympathised, feeling a chill of recognition run through her. Jane's experience with her students echoed Liz's own observations about Rebecca. Next, she visited a bustling grocery store in Sheffield city centre. The clerk, a young man named Peter, confessed his own apathy had started creeping in a few months ago. Peter used to be a regular of Liz. He had been through his problems, but lifelessness was not one of them. His once lively, optimistic eyes now appeared dull, reflecting an internal struggle that lay beyond the reach of simple therapeutic intervention. With a sigh that seemed to originate from the depth of his soul, he broke the silence. I just don't feel anything more, Doc, he confessed, his gaze focused on a point somewhere beyond the confines of the room. It's like every day is an echo of the previous one. I wake up, go to work, come home, and it's all just the same. His voice trailed off as he continued, the words tumbling out of him like dominoes falling in a melancholic cascade. Even the Bitcoin market doesn't excite me anymore. I know we're in a bear phase, and the bounce back is probably inevitable, but it feels distant, unreal. His sentiment seemed to reflect the zeitgeist of post-recession Britain. The vibrancy of the booming 2020s was a faded memory replaced by an era of quiet stagnation. 
The pulse, once teeming with life and chatter, now echoed with the hollow notes of false camaraderie. Conversations had become repetitive litany of the same grievances, dreams and predictions, resembling a scratched vinyl stuck on the same track. It's like the recession blues have cast a shadow over everything, David continued, a hint of resignation seeping into his voice. There was a time when we lived for the highs and lows of the market. The uncertainty was exhilarating, you know. Now it just feels like emptiness. Liz listened, her professional facade holding steady as she absorbed the stark truth in his words. The joy of life, the thrill of unpredictability, the exuberance that coloured the landscape of human experience, all seemed to be slowly draining away, replaced by a sense of hollowness that was palpable yet elusive. She could feel the threads of her mystery tugging at her again, hinting at a connection that was just out of reach. Yet the deeper she delved into it, the more convoluted it seemed to become. His voice was empty, mirroring the lifelessness in his eyes. Liz thanked him, fighting back the lump in her throat. Each conversation, each personal story only deepened Liz's conviction. She saw it in their eyes, the windows to the soul, an emptiness that echoed the same silence, unseen horror that had taken hold of Rebecca. Despite the despair she felt, Liz found her resolve strengthening. She was living amidst an unseen epidemic where people were dying behind their eyes while their bodies went on living. And Liz, feeling increasingly like a lone soldier against an invisible enemy, vowed to break through this horrific condition's veil, determined to bring back the light into the dimming eyes of the city. One typical grey Sheffield afternoon, Liz's clinic phone rang, slicing through the quiet of her office. Glancing at the screen, she recognised the London area code. It was Dr Martin Hayes. Martin, she greeted, her tone bracing for the serious conversation she knew was about to unfold. What can I do for you? Elizabeth. Hayes' voice came through the line, edged with a gravity that mirrored her own internal unease. I believe we need to talk more about what you brought up in our previous conversations. I've been sensing it here too. In London, Liz felt a knot tighten in her stomach. London, with its vibrant life and bustling streets, was now home to the same blank-eyed, listless individuals she'd been encountering in Sheffield. Yes, Martin confirmed, the same symptoms, the emotional distance, the lack of ambition, the apathy. It's more prevalent than we thought at first. The grim confirmation spurred a flurry of thoughts in Liz's mind. Martin, this is bigger than just a regional issue, she stated, her professional demeanour barely containing her urgency. We need to take this to a larger platform. It can't just be our isolated observations anymore. I agree, Martin replied, after a thoughtful pause. It's no longer just the whispers of a few doctors. This is something that needs a broader dialogue. From then on, the conversation was filled with strategizing and planning, discussing potential platforms, forums where they could bring this phenomenon into the limelight. Their observations would no longer be confined to private offices and quiet chats at medical conferences. Liz's private war was no longer just hers. It was a battle 
that was beginning to rally its soldiers. With a growing list of afflicted individuals and their stories in her portfolio, Liz reached out to the government and the media. She tried to arrange meetings, hoping to bring the unfolding crisis into the light, to shake the authorities from their blissful ignorance. However, getting their attention proved to be as challenging as diagnosing the silent epidemic itself. Liz had been granted an audience with Mr Leonard Brown, a high-ranking government health official. His reputation for having a cold, bureaucratic demeanour preceded him, with stories of his steel-grey hair always slicked back to perfection and his penetrating icy stare. Yet Liz was undeterred. She needed to get her point across. The people were suffering, and her duty as a doctor was to alleviate their suffering regardless of how many obstacles stood in her path. The meeting was set in a Spartan office, where the bare walls and formal furniture reflected the government's clinical, emotionless approach to healthcare. Behind the imposing mahogany desk sat Mr Brown, his steel-grey eyes assessing Liz as she took her seat. Dr Clark, how can we assist you today? Mr Brown began his voice as smooth and sterile as the room they were in. Summoning her courage, Liz presented her case, talking about the increasing number of patients exhibiting the same disquieting symptoms, the same emotional void. She discussed the patterns she had observed, her meetings with fellow doctors across the country who had made the same observations. She spared no detail, hoping to penetrate the dismissive demeanour of the official across the desk. However, as Liz spoke, she couldn't help but notice the glazed look in Mr Brown's eyes, the same detached disinterest she had seen in her patients. It was as if her words were bouncing off a cold, impenetrable wall, falling flat against the profound apathy that engulfed the room. I understand your concern, Dr Clark, Mr Brown interrupted, his tone still flat, devoid of empathy. But let's not forget that we are in the midst of a recession. Naturally, this will impact people's spirits. They will adjust in due course. But sir, Liz argued, her frustration bubbling to the surface, this is beyond the usual recession blues. There is a pattern, a strange uniformity to the apathy that cannot be dismissed as mere economic anxiety. For a moment, silence echoed in the room, interrupted only by the soft ticking of a distant clock. Mr Brown maintained his blank stare, as if her urgent pleas had not disturbed his bureaucratic facade at all. The chilly dismissiveness in his demeanour sent a wave of realisation through Liz. The system was not just apathetic, it was the epitome of the symptom she was trying to cure. She was speaking to the void, a void where her concerns were swallowed up, stripped of their urgency and neatly categorised into non-essential bureaucratic files. The fight was not just against a growing epidemic, it was also against the walls of a system that had stopped listening. The next person on Liz's list was Sandra Barnes, a local news reporter known for her hard-hitting exposés and unyielding pursuit of the truth. Under normal circumstances, a seasoned journalist like Sandra would leap at the chance to cover an emerging medical mystery, 
she had a reputation for plunging headfirst into stories that ruffled feathers and challenged the status quo. But as Liz sat across from Sandra in the bustling cafe, with its ambient chatter and clinking dishes, she realised that these were not normal circumstances. The lively spark that had once animated Sandra's eyes were missing, replaced by a placid disinterest that was becoming eerily familiar. Sandra, Liz began, her voice firm despite the knot in her stomach. I have been observing a pattern, a sort of emotional epidemic among my patients, and is not just confined to Sheffield. Colleagues across the country report similar observations. I believe this is a public health concern that needs immediate attention. The reporter, however, seemed far away, lost in the abstract mundaneity of her thoughts. Liz's words, filled with urgency and concern, seemed to float around Sandra like leaves carried away by a disinterested breeze. The steely resolve that Sandra was known for had been replaced by the same detached demeanour Liz had begun to dread. An epidemic, you see. Sandra echoed slowly, her tone lacking the curiosity Liz expected. Instead, there was a dismissive monotone that made Liz's heart sink. The reporter's eyes, once blazing with a thirst for truth, were now distant mirrors reflecting the enigma Liz was desperate to unveil. The realisation was sobering. Liz was not just wrestling with an unknown malady affecting her patients, but also against an inexplicable wall of apathy that seemed to have taken over those she had expected to be her allies. As she left the cafe, the icy wind seemed to echo the chilling reality. The world was not just falling sick, it was falling silent. The reality of her situation was almost laughable. Liz found herself desperately trying to communicate the urgency of the situation to the very people who seemed to be affected by it. Their indifferent responses, their refusal to acknowledge the severity of the situation was as baffling as it was frustrating. But Liz was far from giving up. The fight was personal now, with both Rebecca and Sam showing signs of the affliction. With every dismissive official and indifferent reporter, her resolve only grew stronger. If the government and media were part of the problem, then she had to become part of the solution. Undeterred by her previous encounters, Liz managed to secure a meeting with the health minister at the prestigious Portcullis House in Whitehall. The atrium buzzed with activity, yet it felt as if the space existed in a separate reality, a place of power where decisions were made yet seemingly detached from the grim reality unfolding outside its ground walls. She was escorted to a tastefully decorated conference room where the minister awaited her. A seasoned politician, he exuded an air of authority, but his eyes, Liz noticed, held a trace of the same vacancy she had observed in countless others. As she laid out her findings before him, she noticed the minister's gaze starting to glaze over, his attention drifting away from her urgent plea. It was a reaction Liz had come to dread, a sign of the insidious control the affliction seemed to hold over the mind. It seems like a fascinating hypothesis, Dr. Clark, the minister said, 
echoing the same bland politeness she had received from others. But we must be careful not to stir unnecessary panic. Let's leave it to our research teams. His dismissive response underscored the enormity of Liz's challenge. Half the population seemed infected, their minds being subtly manipulated to dismiss distressing information, to maintain a compliant status quo. The horror of the situation struck Liz with renewed intensity. The affliction wasn't just making people withdrawn and apathetic, it was shaping their perceptions, dictating their responses, controlling them. Liz felt an overwhelming wave of helplessness, but as she walked away from the grandeur of Portcullis House, a renewed sense of determination surged within her. If the system wouldn't help, she would have to find a way herself. Nursing a gin and lemonade in one of the many pubs around Westminster, Liz found herself being approached by a couple of the pub's patrons. Middle-aged men with weathered faces and a twinkle in their eyes, they looked at her with a mix of curiosity and interest. You look out of place here, love, one of them said, taking a seat next to her without invitation. The other chuckled, sliding into the chair across from Liz, effectively boxing her in. Bit grim, out there, in it. She steered the conversation, pointing a finger at a headline on a TV about the latest market downturn. That's a bit of an understatement, love, the older gentleman to her right grunted, taking a swig from his pint. This bloody Bitcoin recession's got us all in the dumps. Every bloke I know is feeling it, a younger man chimed in from across the table, his face lined with concern, like we're all stuck in a rut. Feels like the entire country is stuck in the matrix, Liz observed aloud, her gaze drifting back to her scattered papers. In the midst of the laughter, another chimed in, a lanky man with a grizzled beard. He had a deep, gravelly voice that demanded attention. You know, when Neo comes out of the matrix, he's got a parasite stuck inside him. Maybe we're all infected by parasites, he declared, raising his pint in a mock toast. The table erupted into another round of laughter, the outrageous claim adding to their drunken revelry. Yet his words lingered in the air long after the laughter subsided. It was a casual joke, and yet it struck a chord with Liz. Parasites. Her mind raced back to her research. The odd symptoms, the vacant expressions, the apathy. Could it be that simple? Could a parasite be the cause of this silent epidemic? It was a radical thought, a leap from what she'd considered thus far. But it made sense, fitting into the puzzle like a missing piece. She clutched, her papers tighter, her heart pounding in her chest. In the unlikely setting of a local pub, amidst the laughter and jests of middle-aged men, Liz may have found the breakthrough she was looking for. Liz investigated further, and it led her deep into the labyrinth of parasitology. Armed with a fierce determination, she embarked on a journey through decades of scientific literature and case studies, exploring the intricacies of the relationship between parasites and their human hosts. Most people, she learned, thought of parasitic infection as diseases of the past, or as afflictions that only affected impoverished regions with poor sanitation and healthcare. 
Yet the reality was starkly different. Parasites were not relics of the past. They were active, present, and far more influential than anyone imagined. Parasites were fascinatingly complex creatures. Some were as tiny as a speck of dust. Others could grow to frightening lengths inside their hosts' bodies. They could live undetected for years, adapting and evolving with their host, all the while exploiting the host's resources for their survival and reproduction. From toxoplasmosis, caused by Toxoplasmogondi, a parasite found in cat feces, which had been linked to changes in human behaviour and mood, to the infamous zombie ants, manipulated by a parasitic fungus to leave their colony and die in optimal locations for the fungus's reproduction. The examples were many, and they all pointed to one disturbing fact. Parasites could, and did, alter their host's behaviour to facilitate their life cycles. Parasitic infections in humans, she discovered, were not as uncommon as one might think. Gyrodiasis, a diarrheal disease caused by Gardiaisis, a diarrheal disease caused by Gardia lamblia, was one such example. So were cases of cryptosporidosis and trichomonisis. Many of these infections went unnoticed because their symptoms were often mistaken for other conditions. But what if there was a parasite that could go unnoticed because it presented no physical symptoms, only behavioural changes? An organism so insidious that it could spread undetected, silently altering the behaviour of its human host, manipulating them into a state of apathy and disconnection. The symptoms they can induce can be so common. Fatigue, headache, upset stomach, changes in appetite that they are frequently mistaken for signs of stress or other common illnesses. Moreover, diagnostic tests for parasitic infections are not routinely performed in Western countries, further increasing the chances of these infections going unnoticed. These tiny invaders can impact more than just physical health. Emerging research suggested that some parasites may influence behaviour, moods and mental states, a concept known as behavioural manipulation. The idea is that a parasite might release substances that alter brain chemistries, potentially leading to changes in mood, perception or behaviour that favour survival and propagation of the parasite. The more she read, the more plausible it seemed. A parasitic infection could explain the eerie changes she had observed in her children, in government officials, in the people around her. It was a chilling thought, but it offered a potential answer, a way to fight back. The solution wouldn't be easy, she knew. Identifying a parasite, especially one that could mask itself so effectively, would be a daunting task. Treating it even more so. But Liz was not deterred. She had a direction now, a glimmer of hope, and she clung to it with every fibre of her being. Liz managed to arrange a meeting with Dr Alan Jennings, a leading authority in the field of parasitology. Subject, an unusual theory, uncharted parasitic infection? Dear Dr Jennings, I hope this message finds you well.
My name is Dr Elizabeth Clark, and I'm a neurologist based in Sheffield. Over the past several months, I have been observing a consistent pattern of symptoms in my patients, symptoms that don't align with any recognised neurological disorders or known mental health conditions. There's a pervasive lethargy, a sense of apathy and emotional blunting that appears increasingly prevalent. It feels akin to a fog that has settled over their minds, muting their emotions and draining their vitality. From my research and observations, I have come to entertain a theory that I believe warrants further investigation. That these symptoms might not be of psychological origin, but could possibly be the result of parasitic infection. I am aware of the radical nature of this suggestion, and I assure you it isn't a conclusion I have come to lightly. However, having explored multiple avenues and finding no satisfactory explanation, I believe it is a theory that merits consideration. I understand that this is your area of expertise, and I value your insights and guidance on this matter. I look forward to the possibility of a discussion with you on this subject at your earliest convenience. Kind regards, Dr. Elizabeth Clark. The email sat in Dr. Jennings' inbox, sandwiched between routine updates and newsletters. Liz's unique proposition piqued his interest, prompting him to set up a meeting to further discuss her observations and this unconventional theory. The prospect of a heretofore unknown parasitic infection affecting a significant segment of the population was a hypothesis worth exploring. Her email caught his attention, an unusual theory backed by her observations and research. In the quiet stillness of his academic office, bringing in books and an air of scholarly importance, Liz laid out her case. Seated amid the towering bookshelves of Dr Jennings' office, awash with the musky scent of old paper and a quiet air of intellect, Liz laid out her case. Dr Jennings, thank you for meeting with me, Liz started, her tone both earnest and determined. The issue I'm dealing with is, quite honestly, baffling. Jennings nodded, his hands folded, his gaze steady. You've certainly piqued my interest, Dr Clark. Please go on. Liz exhaled, looking down at her note in her hand, her mind arranging and rearranging her words. In my practice, I have seen an increase in a certain set of symptoms. Emotional aloofness, a loss of interest or ambition, an overall disengagement from life. At first, it seemed like depression, but the uniformity, the widespread nature, it didn't add up. She glanced up at Dr Jennings, taking in his attentive expression before continuing. And then I started to think outside the box. The consistency, the pervasiveness of these symptoms. It's almost parasitic. She allowed the word to hang in the air, her gaze steady on Dr Jennings. His eyes widened slightly, a spark of interest lighting his features. Parasitic, you mean to say? Yes, Liz cut him off. I believe we could be dealing with a previously unknown parasite that's subtly manipulating its host's behaviour. 
It's radical, I know, but it's the only theory that seems to encompass the full range of symptoms. As the silence stretched between them, Liz felt a strange sense of relief. She had voiced her fears, shared her theory. It was no longer just her burden to bear. And in the hushed tranquillity of that academic office, she saw something flicker in Jennings's gaze. Not dismissal, but intrigue. As she delved deeper into her theory about a parasitic infection that could manipulate the host's behaviour, she noticed a shift in Dr Jennings's expression. What started as polite interest slowly morphed into a pensive frown, his keen eyes reflecting a dawn of possible realisation. Your theory, he said, his voice steady yet thoughtful, while unusual, is not entirely implausible. Parasites can be quite adept at manipulating their host's behaviour. It's how they ensure their survival and reproduction. The air in the office seemed to grow heavy with speculation. Each piece of silence punctuated with the clinking sound of Dr Jennings's pen tapping against the edge of his notepad. His gaze locked on Liz, the palpable curiosity in his eyes lending credence to her theory. What if Liz started, her words coming out slower as she treaded cautiously into uncharted territories of her hypothesis. These parasites are not only causing the widespread apathy, but are also manipulating human behaviour in more specific ways. Dr Jennings leaned back in his chair, a thoughtful frown pulling at the corners of his mouth. Do elaborate, he prompted, clearly intrigued. Liz swallowed, her fingers clenched around her cold cup of tea. We've currently experienced a significant bear market in Bitcoin. This has resulted in a widespread depression, economically and emotionally. Could these parasites be influencing this? If they found a way to manipulate our brain chemistry to induce a state of apathy, then? Her voice trailed off, leaving the implication heavily hanging in the room. Jennings raised his eyebrow, his pen still in his hand. Are you suggesting, he asked slowly, that these parasites might be subtly guiding the host behaviour to create an environment that favours their survival and reproduction, so much so that they could possibly manipulate a global economy? It was a bold conjecture, one that seemed to teeter on the brink of science fiction. Yet, with the pieces of the puzzle laid bare in front of them, it didn't seem entirely implausible. They sat in silence for a few moments, digesting the magnitude of Liz's hypothesis. What started as an odd pattern of symptoms was now slowly morphing into a scenario that sounded eerily akin to a covert parasitic invasion, one that could potentially threaten the very fabric of human society. I think, Jennings finally said, breaking the silence, we might be onto something here. We need more data, more research. But Liz, if your theory holds, this could change everything we know about parasitic infections and their impact on host behaviour. Liz nodded, her resolve unwavering. 
She understood the uphill task ahead, but this was a start, a crucial first step. The path ahead was shrouded in uncertainty, but she was not alone. And for the first time in a long while, she felt a glimmer of hope flicker within her. Think about it, Dr. Jennings began, his hands gesturing animatedly as he dived into the realm of parapsychology. Parasites are some of the most successful organisms on this planet, and they didn't reach this point without evolving some truly ingenious survival mechanisms. He picked up a paperweight, an intricately crafted class model of the brain. In particular, some parasites have learned how to tap into the ultimate control centre, the brain. Liz leaned forward, her eyes fixed on the model, as Dr Jennings explained. Take the example of Toxoplasma gondii, a single-celled parasite. In rodents, its primary host, the parasite alters the host's brain chemistry, reducing its fear of cats. The rodent is then more likely to be eaten, and the parasite completes its life cycle in the cat, its secondary host. He sat down the paperweight. So the concept of a parasite manipulating its host's behaviour is well established in science. But humans, Liz asked, could a parasite alter human brain chemistry to the extent of influencing their free will? Dr Jennings pondered on this, his fingers tapping a steady rhythm on his desk. Well, that's venturing into uncharted territory. In theory, it's possible. Our brain chemistry influences our behaviour, our mood, even our perception of reality. A parasite that could manipulate this chemistry could, potentially, influence the host's behaviour, even their free will. He paused, his gaze drifting to the window. Evolution has shown us that survival often involves adaptation, sometimes radical, unexpected ones. Who are we to say what's possible or not? The room fell silent, the weight of their conversation hanging in the air. Liz absorbed his words, her mind whirling with the implications. The science supported her theory. But is there a cure? Liz's voice wavered a little, betraying her desperate hope. Dr Jennings fell silent for a moment, his gaze bore into Liz's, a subtle spark of defiance flickering in his eyes. There might be. His voice was barely a whisper, just loud enough for her to hear. Ivermectin, he finally said, a name that carried with it a storm of controversy and hope. But that drug, it was controversial, wasn't it? Liz asked, her memory of those days hazy. Yes. Dr Jennings affirmed, but it was primarily due to its reported use as a treatment for COVID-19. Ivermectin is fundamentally an antiparasitic drug. It has a long history of effectively treating a variety of parasitic diseases. From river blindness to strongidoisis, it's been a game changer. But remember, he warned, even if your theory holds this is a completely new parasitic infection we're talking about. Dr Jennings continued, a note of passion creeping into his voice as he talked about ivermectin. It's a fascinating drug, Liz. 
It was developed in the late 1970s from a strain of bacteria found in the soil of Japan. Its discovery earned William Campbell and Satoshi Amura the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 2015. He walked over to his shelves, pulling out a thick book, The Pharmacology of Ivermectin and Its Mechanism of Action. He opened the book to a diagram of the drug's molecular structure. It targets the glutamate-gated chloride ion channels in invertebrates. Essentially, it paralyzes and kills the parasites. He ran a finger down the page, his eyes scanning the text before settling on a particular passage. Ivermectin is a part of a class of drugs known as macrocyclic lactones. Its molecular structure includes a large ring of atoms. It's this structure that allows it to bind to specific proteins in invertebrates. He traced the diagram of ivermectin molecules, a complex web of carbon, hydrogen and oxygen atoms highlighted with annotations and arrows pointing to the important parts of the structure. When ivermectin enters the body, it seeks out these proteins, specifically the glutamate-gated chloride ion channels found in the nerve and muscle cells of parasites. By binding to these channels, he continued, ivermectin alters the normal flow of ions through the nerve cells. In simpler terms, it messes with the electrical signals that parasites need for movement and survival. The result is paralysis and, eventually, death of the parasite. Dr Jennings flipped to a different page, one filled with graphs and tables. Ivermectin is well absorbed when taken orally and is extensively metabolised in the liver. It is also lipophilic, meaning it tends to accumulate in fat tissues and the brain. Dr Jennings gestured towards another diagram on the page, this one representing the human body. He traced the line from the mouth down to the throat and into the stomach, illustrating the path ivermectin takes once it's ingested. When ivermectin is taken orally, it gets absorbed into the bloodstream fairly quickly. From there, it's distributed to various tissues, including the brain. With its lipophilic properties, he explained, shifting his gaze from the diagram to meet Liz's focused stare. Ivermectin can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. This allows it to reach parasites that have nestled themselves in the central nervous system. Feeling the weight of this potential discovery, Liz cleared her throat and newfound determination in her eyes. So, Dr Jennings, she began, her voice steady. How do we proceed? Can we devise an experiment to test this theory? Dr Jennings leaned back in his chair, his eyes thoughtful. Testing for parasitic infections is tricky, Liz. They don't always show up in standard tests. And some of these parasites are so small and elusive, they can easily evade detection. But, he continued, the ghost of a smile playing on his lips. That doesn't mean we're at a dead end. We could consider conducting a small-scale treatment trial. Ivermectin is generally safe for human consumption and has a well-documented safety profile. If we get the necessary permissions and maintain strict ethical guidelines, we could use it on a select group of people exhibiting these symptoms 
and see if there's any change in their behaviour. Liz nodded, her mind racing with the possibilities. She felt a spark of hope ignite within her. It was a long shot she knew, but it was a start. And at this point she was ready to explore every avenue, to turn over every stone in her pursuit of the truth. Let's do it, she said resolutely, meeting Dr. Jennings' gaze with unwavering determination. Let's expose this invisible enemy and bring it down. Thank you for your time, Dr. Jennings, Liz said, gathering her things. Before I go, any further advice for me? Any tips? Dr. Jennings paused, his gaze falling on the glass paperweight brain on his desk. Liz, we're potentially stepping into a completely unknown territory. A parasitic infection that could alter human free will is something we've never encountered before. My advice is this, stay open-minded and be prepared for resistance. This idea will be difficult for many to accept. He stood up, his eyes meeting hers with a sincerity that bolstered her resolve. And most importantly, Liz, remember, you're not alone in this. There's a whole community of scientists and doctors out there who want the truth, who want to understand just as you do. You need to find them. Liz left Dr Jennings' office with newfound determination. Her next stop was the Ministry of Health, with tangible evidence and a plan of action. She had a compelling case to present, but it wasn't just a case anymore. It was a potential breakthrough, a glimmer of hope. The ride to the Ministry was a blur, her mind preoccupied with rehearsing her argument. As the buildings of the Ministry loomed ahead, she took a deep breath. Her nerves felt like electric currents, buzzing with anticipation. But this was a different kind of anxiety, one fueled by hope and not despair. Arranging a meeting with the Health Minister was no small feat, especially on such short notice. But Liz was not one to back down from a challenge. She pulled some strings, called in a few favours, and with a bit of luck, managed to secure a meeting. Armed with her notes and research findings, Liz strode into the health minister's office with a confidence she hadn't felt in a long time. The minister looked up as she entered, his face neutral. Liz didn't let his indifference deter her. She was on a mission and she wouldn't be dismissed this time. Taking a deep breath, she launched into her presentation, her voice steady and sure. As she laid out her case, she saw the health minister's eyebrows raise in surprise. The use of ivermectin, the minister began slowly, his fingers fiddling with the pen he held, has been a point of contention in recent times. The public outcry during the COVID-19 era has not yet faded. The potential fallout from reopening this discussion could be significant and I fear the Ministry is ill-equipped to handle such a response currently. He looked at Liz across the large wooden desk, his eyes somewhat sympathetic. Dr Clark, your passion for your field is commendable, and the thought you have put into this theory of yours is quite frankly impressive. However, his voice trailed off as he gathered his thoughts. Resuming his calm, measured tone, he continued, 
the suggestion that we start experimenting with ivermectin again. It's a bit too radical, too risky at this stage. It sounds more like a theory drawn from a dystopian novel than a viable solution. As the minister concluded, Liz saw the distant, vacant look overtake his gaze, the same emptiness that had haunted her for months. His polite refusal was a stark reminder of the battle that still lay ahead. The war against this insidious entity was just beginning, and it was clear that the road would be treacherous. Liz left the meeting with her mind swirling in chaos, as the echo of the minister's no chased her down the corridors, an idea began to take form, coiling like a serpent in the recesses of her thoughts. Dr Jennings's voice echoed in her mind. The parasite could interfere with free will. Could it be possible that this unseen enemy was controlling the minds of its hosts, directing their actions, curbing their free will to a point where it even prevented its own death? Like a puppeteer pulling invisible strings, the parasite she considered might just have twisted the government, turned the people in charge into mere marionettes, their decisions dictated by the silent intruder within them. The refusal of the minister to even consider Ivermectin took on a sinister significance, the glazed over eyes, an unsettling sight she could not forget. In the maze of this Kafkaesque absurdity, she found herself stuck in a circle of futility. The parasite was guarding itself with an insidious mechanism that turned its host against the very medicine that could be its doom. To prove this theory, she needed the Ivermectin. But to get the Ivermectin, she had to convince the very hosts who were manipulated by the parasites. It was a cruel and relentless paradox, a labyrinth without an exit, and Liz, trapped in its centre, could only helplessly watch the walls closing around her. With the weight of her defeat pressing down on her, Liz found herself wandering back to the pub she'd visited earlier. Its familiar neon sign flickered in the early evening gloom, an island of warmth amid the ever-encroaching darkness. She stepped inside, the clatter of conversation and clinking glasses washing over her. Unlike the sterile coldness of Portcullis House, the pub radiated a lived-in comfort that was instantly soothing. Middle-aged men still crowded the bar, their hearty laughter and easy camaraderie a stark contrast to the bureaucratic indifference she'd just encountered. She ordered a gin and lemonade. The bartender's friendly nod a welcome respite from the dismissive glances of the health minister. Cradling her drink, she found a quiet corner, sinking into a worn leather armchair that seemed to swallow her whole. As she sipped her drink, she let her mind wander, her thoughts clouded by the bittersweet tang of the gin. She was alone in her fight, it seemed, alone against a silent enemy, a monstrous parasite manipulating the minds of half the world. But she wasn't yet done. This was a setback, not a defeat. She would find a way, she promised herself, even if it meant walking this road alone. 
Her morose silence evidently did not blend well with the pub's jovial atmosphere. A stout man with a grizzled beard sidled up to her, his pint glass sloshing. Why the long face, lass? he asked, his eyes twinkling beneath bushy eyebrows. Liz gave a hollow chuckle, swirling her drink in her glass. Government won't give me some drugs I need, she confessed, her voice sounding bristle in her own ears. The man barked out a laugh, clapping her on the shoulder in a comradely manner. Well, you're in the right pub for drugs. I don't think you've quite got what I need, Liz said, a hint of dry humour in her tone. The man chuckled, then paused, his expression shifting subtly. Well, that depends, he said, his voice dropping to a conspiratorial whisper. I've got a mate who's a bit of a whiz kid, a real expert with the dark net. Liz's eyebrows lifted. This certainly wasn't what she had expected. This might be an unorthodox way to get her hands on Ivermedkin, but at this point she was willing to try anything. Memories of her university days bubbled to the surface. Liz remembered the rush of the unknown, the thrill of risks when she and her friends had experimented with a few ecstasy pills they'd managed to score off the dark net. It was a world she hadn't dipped in since those heady, reckless days of her youth. But desperate times called for desperate measures. It was a long shot, sure, but this might be her best, perhaps only chance, to get her hands on Ivermectin. The Darknet was an unregulated world where anything could be bought and sold, if one knew where to look. All right, she said, nodding decisively at the man, let's give it a try. His face split into a broad grin. That's the spirit, lass. I'll get Dave right over. And so, under the dim light of the pub, amidst the clink of pint glasses and the hum of conversation, Liz found herself stepping onto a path she'd never imagined. It was a dangerous and potentially illegal one, but she was driven by an unshakable conviction, fuelled by the memory of the glazed-over eyes and fading personalities she had been trying to save. She would get the Avermetkin no matter the cost, for herself, for her children, for the people who couldn't fight for themselves. She was ready to face the darkness, to plunge into the shadowy recesses of the internet, if it meant a chance to conquer the parasite. With Dave's guidance, an oddly lanky man with an infectious grin and a twinkle of mischief in his eyes, Liz found herself thrust into the shadowy underbelly of the internet. The darknet was a world of its own, a cryptic maze of complex codes and secret pathways, and Dave was her guide. Within this vast, lawless landscape, anything was possible. Anything could be bought, from rare collectibles to deadly substances, and amidst the myriad of obscure items, they found what they were looking for. I am a American. In a strange twist of fate, Liz found herself huddled in the back room of the pub, poring over the specs of various listings. Dave, with his infinite patience, helped her navigate the convoluted process of obtaining Monero, the preferred currency of the dark net, due to its additional layers of privacy compared to Bitcoin. Once the transaction was completed, Liz waited. Days turned into weeks and Liz found herself sinking into a fitful state of anxiety.
Every ring of the doorbell sent her heart racing. Each passing day was an agonising testament to her audacious gamble. Finally, the day arrived. A nondescript package from India landed on her doorstep, the innocuous brown wrapping belying its precious contents. With trembling hands, she unwrapped the package, revealing the unassuming white pills of ivermectin. Her heart pounded as she held the supposed cure to the insidious parasite. Here it was, in her hand, the result of her relentless pursuit. But it was one thing to have the medication in her possession. It was another thing to prove its effectiveness against the mind-controlling parasite. And so she prepared herself for the next daunting task, to test the ivermectin. She'd come this far, braved the twisted labyrinth of bureaucracy, dared to step into the forbidden territories of the dark net. Now she would see if her bold efforts would bear fruit, or if she had just chased a phantom. Reaching out to Dr Jennings, Liz braced herself for a barrage of medical jargon. But to her surprise, Jennings was remarkably patient and thorough in his explanations. They spent hours discussing the proper dosage of ivermectin, its potential side effects, and how to monitor its effects carefully. First, you must understand that while ivermectin has been used to treat parasitic infections, it has not been studied in the context of whatever specific parasite we are dealing with. We are stepping into uncharted territory here, Jennings warned. He continued, That being said, the standard dosage of ivermectin for treating parasitic infections is typically 150 to 200 micrograms per kilogram of your body weight. Given your weight, you should start with a dose of approximately 12 milligrams. It is best to take it on an empty stomach with a full glass of water. They discussed potential side effects, which could include dizziness, nausea and skin rash. Jennings made it clear that if she experienced any severe side effects, she should stop taking the medication immediately and reach out to him. And remember Liz, Jennings added, even if this works, it's not a silver bullet. It might alleviate symptoms, it might not. It might have unintended side effects. We're operating in the dark here. Take it slow, monitor your responses, and keep me in the loop. Feeling both overwhelmed and hopeful, Liz thanked Jennings for his guidance. With the dose plan in hand, she was one step closer to her goal. Now, all that remained was to take the plunge and start the trial. Over the following weeks, Liz began to notice distinct changes in herself. The fog of fatigue that she had grown accustomed to seemed to be lifting. The weight of exhaustion that had anchored her mornings were lessening. She found herself waking with a vitality she hadn't experienced in years. Her anxiety, too, appeared to be dwindling. Once all-consuming, the chronic worry that seemed to permeate every moment of her day had faded into the background. It was not entirely gone, but it was less intrusive, less demanding of her attention. And perhaps, most surprisingly, Liz noticed a resurgence of her creativity and vibrancy. She found herself engrossed in her work, ideas flowing with an ease that felt both foreign and familiar. 
It was as though a veil had been lifted, allowing her to think more clearly and freely. These changes, while positive, also filled Liz with a deep sense of unease. Had she too been living under the influence of a parasite for all of these years without knowing it? The thought was simultaneously terrifying and illuminating. After weeks of observing these changes and meticulously documenting her experiences, Liz concluded that it was time to take the next step, administrating ivermectin to her children. She was nervous, of course. The unknown consequences of such a decision were daunting, but she also felt a powerful conviction. If this drug had made such an impact on her, could it not do the same for her children, whose lives were also being dimmed by this insidious parasite? With a mixture of anxiety and resolve, Liz prepared to take one of the most significant leaps of faith in her life. With a heavy heart and trembling hands, Liz prepared the doses for her children. She explained to them that this was a new type of vitamin she wanted them to try, hoping it would make them, in the end, feel better. Here, take the white pill. The children, trusting their mother implicitly, took the doses without a fuss. For the first few days, there were no apparent changes. Liz watched them, heart pounding in her chest, looking for any signs of improvement or adverse reactions. As the day turned into a week, she began to notice subtle shifts in their behaviour. They seemed more attentive, more engaged. Their eyes, which once seemed distant, now sparkled with a vitality that she hadn't seen in a long time. The monotonous routines that they used to follow with a near-robotic precision were slowly giving way to more spontaneous activities. The sight of her children indulging in creative play and expressing a spectrum of emotions brought tears to her eyes. Two weeks in, the transformation was undeniable. Their school teachers report a marked improvement in their participation in class. They were playing more, laughing more, and their eyes had lost that glazed, faraway look. It was as if Liz was getting to know her children again, but this time as individuals full of life and energy, rather than distant, subdued versions of themselves. While the joy of seeing her children flourishing was profound, it was tinged with a pang of anger. Liz was angry at the system that denied people a potential cure, at the society that had become so complacent, and at herself for not recognising the symptoms earlier. But anger was a powerful motivator, and Liz was more determined than ever to bring the truth to light. In the following weeks, Liz made it her mission to spread the word about her discovery. She reached out to local newspapers, contacted independent bloggers, and shared her experiences on social media platforms. She knew that her journey had just begun, and she had a long uphill battle, but she was ready. Once Liz had thoroughly documented the positive changes in her and her children's lives, she reached out to Dr Jennings again. She sent him her notes, observations and recordings of their behaviour before and after starting ivermectin. The change, both subjective and objective, was so stark that it was hard for even the most sceptical mind to ignore. Dr Jennings, who had been following Liz's personal experiment with a keen interest, was astounded by her findings. 
The signs were pointing towards a reality that was almost unfathomable. A parasitic infection that had spread at such a scale, affecting people's cognition and behaviour, unnoticed for years perhaps, and that there was a common antiparasitic drug that seemed to have the potential to counteract these effects. Recognising the significance of their findings, they started planning a clinical trial. They reached out to independent institutions, both nationally and internationally, and compiled a comprehensive plan detailing the administration of ivermectin, patient monitoring and data collection. There were several challenges they had to face. Many were still sceptical, believing the whole theory to be a conspiracy. Finding willing participants was another challenge, as was dealing with the red tape around conducting clinical trials. However, Liz and Dr Jennings were relentless. They were not just up against a biological infection, but a socio-political pandemic of denial and ignorance. Their determination was unwavering, and with each passing day, they inched closer to their goal of bringing the truth to light. In a world that was unknowingly succumbing to the control of parasites, Liz was unwavering in her determination. One overcast afternoon, as Liz was going through her notes, there was a sharp knock on the door. When she opened it, she found two stern-faced individuals on her doorstep, dressed in sombre grey suits. They introduced themselves as representatives of the Department of Health, but their demeanour was more reminiscent of intelligence officers than health professionals. They requested to come in and have a chat with her, their tone polite but firm. Liz, although taken aback, allowed them into her living room. She couldn't shake off the feeling that their visit was not merely a friendly call to discuss her work. As they took a seat opposite her, the older one started. Dr Clark, your work has been making quite a ripple in the scientific community and beyond. It's been unsettling for some. The undercurrent of tension was unmistakable, but Liz held her ground. She was acutely aware that this was not a casual visit, but an attempt to intimidate or dissuade her. She replied coolly, Change is often unsettling, but does that not make it any less necessary? As the conversation progressed, it became apparent that they were here to subtly warn her about the potential consequences of her actions. The insinuations about her professional reputation, thinly veiled threats about her funding, and the carefully worded caution about the implications for her children were all part of their repertoire. It was evident that the powers that be were not happy with the kind of violence she was opening up. As the weeks passed, Liz grew more and more determined. She continued with the ivermectin, and the transformation in their behaviour became incredible. Dr Jennings visited their home regularly, monitoring their progression with a keen scientific eye. His fascination with the case was palpable, yet he was discreet about his involvement, aware of the potential consequences. Liz became an expert in sourcing the ivermectin from the dark web, each purchase carefully concealed under layers of Monero transactions. She felt like a character in some surreal spy novel, embroiled in a secret world of transactions and coded messages. It was bizarre and exhilarating at the same time. 
She also began to research other people's experiences with ivermectin, finding a community of individuals who had stumbled upon the drug's potential and were self-medicating. Their stories gave her hope and reassurance that she wasn't alone in her quest. But it was not all smooth sailing. There were nights when she lay awake, her mind racing with fear and doubt. What if she was wrong? What if she was putting her children at risk? The men from the Department of Health would occasionally still pay her unannounced visits. Their veiled threats a constant reminder of the danger she was in. But she looked into her children's eyes. She knew she was doing the right thing. She was fighting not just for them, but for everyone who'd been trapped in this parasitic haze. News of Liz's unconventional treatment spread like wildfire, spurred on by an expose in a popular alternative health blog. The story was quickly picked up by the national media. Headlines blare about renegade doctors' fight against mind-control parasites. There were inevitable sceptics, labelling Liz as a maverick or even a dangerous zealot. But there were those who found her story compelling, even inspiring. The media attention prompted an influx of inquiries from people experiencing similar symptoms, desperate for answers and help. Liz was inundated with calls and emails from people sharing their own experiences and from others seeking help for their loved ones. Meanwhile, the government and medical establishment went into damage control. Official statements were issued denouncing Liz's claims as unproven and dangerous. Medical professionals were interviewed on TV, their stances ranging from bemusement to outright condemnation of Liz's actions. The backlash was swift and harsh. Liz was suspended from her medical practice pending a formal investigation. She was painted as a rogue element, her treatments labelled as reckless and her theories as wild conjecture. As days turned into weeks, Liz watched as the media landscape shifted against her. The newspapers that had once heralded her as a diligent neurologist working towards the betterment of public health were now labelling her a renegade and a fearmongerer. Television anchors sneered at her theory, calling it ludicrous and unscientific. Talk show hosts criticised her for endorsing a drug that was primarily used to treat parasitic infections in livestock. All this despite mounting evidence. The patients Liz had treated with ivermectin were showing noticeable improvements. Their eyes regained their former spark, their apathy replaced by rekindled interest in life. Rebecca, her own daughter, had broken free from the fog that was holding her captive. But the media seemed uninterested in these stories. Their narratives focused solely on ridiculing Liz's theory, painting her as an unhinged professional peddling a dangerous idea. The headlines screamed their disapproval. Mad doctor prescribes horse dewormer, they shouted, completely disregarding human applications of ivermectin. A week later, without warning, she was reading the Times newspaper, which made her double take. Renegade doctor endangers public health with horse dewormer cure claim by Andrew P. Johnston. The medical community has been thrown into chaos even further as Dr Elizabeth Liz Clark, a private medical practitioner, announced she had been administrating ivermectin, a controversial drug commonly used as a horse dewormer to her patients and even her own children. 
Dr. Clark claims that this veterinary medicine banned by the NHS due to its contentious and unproven use during the COVID-19 pandemic can cure an apparent wave of societal zombification. She speculates this condition, which she herself has diagnosed, is a result of a mysterious parasite infection affecting the brains of the populace. Leading medical experts and health experts are aghast at Dr. Clark's outrageous and reckless claims. The NHS and the health minister have issued stern warnings against the use of ivermectin in humans, citing a lack of solid evidence supporting its efficacy and potential health risks. I'm appalled, said Dr. Lucy Henderson, a leading neurologist in Sheffield. This is not only dangerously misleading, but a flagrant violation of medical ethics. Ivermectin is a potent antiparasite medication designed for animals. Its misuse in humans could have severe side effects. The Minister for Health was equally critical, describing Dr. Clark's actions as deeply irresponsible. Spreading misinformation and fear under the guise of medicine is unforgivable, he said in a statement. Our experts are working tirelessly to ensure public health and safety. And it is critical that we rely on science and facts, not fear and conjecture. As authorities scramble to undo the damage and reassure the public, Dr. Clark has been suspended from her practice, pending a full investigation into her actions. Questions are now being raised as to how someone with such radical and unsupported views could have slipped through the checks and balances of the medical system. With public health on the line, one thing is clear, medical mavericks playing fast and loose with the facts and people's lives cannot be tolerated. Liz was shocked. She had no idea she had been suspended from her medical practice. And that very morning, she got a curt letter through the post telling her just the same. That evening, with a fifth bottle of wine humming through her veins, she paced relentlessly around her quiet house, phone pressed to her ear. She had never been one to shy away from voicing her opinions, but today's outrage had struck a nerve. Jennings, she slurred slightly. It's unbelievable. It's like we're living under the Stasi, but it's the NHS, for God's sake. Dr Jennings, always patient, always willing to lend an ear, hummed on the other end. He had been with Liz through it all, and while he did not share her firebrand tendencies, he too was disappointed by the vitriol spewed by the media and the dismissive attitudes of their colleagues. And yes, Liz, he said calmly, it's been quite a spectacle, but we knew it would be like this when we started. The establishment doesn't take kindly to Mavericks. But it's not right, Jennings, Liz burst out. Her thoughts were on fire, her emotions flickering wildly like candles in a windstorm. Do you remember what Alexander Fleming did? He discovered penicillin in his spare time. He was allowed to experiment, to try new things, to think outside the box. And look what he achieved. I know Liz, Jennings said softly, but times have changed. The landscape of medicine has changed. There's too much bureaucracy, too many red tapes now. Liz felt a lump of despair rising in her throat. It felt like she was fighting an uphill battle against an unseen, unwavering energy. But Jennings, she said after a pause, her voice barely a whisper, 
what if, what if we're right? What if the key to saving people, to saving my children, lies in a pill that's currently being used to deworm horses? What then? In the dead of night, her peaceful slumber was brutally interrupted by the pounding of fists on her door. Confusion turned into shock as she was roughly handcuffed by a stern-looking police officer who read charges. Elizabeth Clark, you are under arrest on suspicion of the following crimes, the officer recited in a monotone voice, unrolling a long piece of paper. Possession and distribution of controlled substances, namely ivermectin, without a valid prescription. Violation of the Misuse of Drugs Regulation 2001. Practicing medicine without a valid license. Breach of NHS regulations regarding unapproved medical practices. Unauthorized experimentation on human subjects in breach of the Human Tissue Act 2004. Violation of GDPR through improper storage and handling of patient data. Violation of the Food and Drug Administration Act for the distribution of unapproved medications and endangering public health through the dissemination of misleading information. Words seemed to echo ominously around the room as Liz stood frozen, the gravity of the charges sinking into her. She glanced back at her children, their wide, frightened eyes reflecting the blue strobe lights outside. Her heart sank. In addition, the officer continued, unfazed by her visible shock. You are being investigated for potential offences under the Fraud Act 2006, the Medical Act 1983, the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974, and the Criminal Justice Act 2003. Liz sat on the cold, hard bed in her cell, her mind filled with the sound of a judge's gavel. The stark grey walls seemed to close in on her as the magnitude of her situation hit her. Every day, a guard would bring a pile of letters to her cell, one more precious than the last. The letters were from people she had tried to help, people who had dared to believe in her and taken the ivermectin treatment. Their words were filled with gratitude and hope, and they painted a picture of a world slowly waking up from a long slumber. Dear Dr. Liz, one letter started, I just wanted to let you know that after taking ivermectin, I feel like I've been given a new lease on life. I haven't felt this energetic in years. My mind feels clear and focused. I have started painting again, something I haven't done in a long time. Thank you for everything. Another letter read, You've saved my marriage, Dr. Liz. My wife has been so distant and unresponsive for years. After the ivermectin, it's like she's back to her old self. We're even planning a holiday together. Keep fighting, we're with you. Each letter was a testament to Liz's theory, a living proof she was on the right path. The melancholia that had taken root in her heart was lifting. The prison walls may have imprisoned her body, but they could not imprison the truth. Liz's trial became a sensation. As the news of her arrest and the reasons behind it started to spread, so did the curiosity about the zombie epidemic. The mainstream media kept portraying her as a reckless doctor peddling dangerous drugs. But whispers grew louder in more independent corners of the internet. The narrative was shifting. Videos began to surface. Testimonials of people who had tried ivermectin, sharing their remarkable experiences. 
Stories of revived passions, rejuvenated relationships, rekindled creativities. A parade of testimonies from people who felt as if they had wakened from a long, dull slumber. Liz's lawyer, a sharp and sympathetic woman, saw the rising tide and harnessed it. She used every available avenue to bring the testimonies to the court's attention. The jury listened and they couldn't ignore the overwhelming mountain of evidence. As the trial reached its climax, Liz took to the stand. She spoke with conviction and passion, her voice resonating in the silent courtroom. She talked about her observations, her research, her desperation to help her and others. She shared the promising results, the testimonies from people who felt cured and alive. The room was electric, a poignant silence enveloping everyone as she painted a vivid picture of a world that was unknowingly shackled, but now on the brink of awakening. The verdict was announced a week later. Liz was found not guilty on all counts. The courtroom erupted in cheers, the echoes reverberating off the walls, the judge's gavel failing to restore order. The underdog had triumphed. In the aftermath of the trial, Liz was thrust into the global limelight. An icon of resistance, she became a beacon of hope for those feeling oppressed by their own minds. Governments were forced to take notice. Investigations into the widespread use of ivermectin in humans were launched, and slowly the world began to wake up to the possibility of a hidden parasite. Liz returned home to her children, who now greeted her with warm smiles and bright eyes. Their transformation a testament to the effectiveness of ivermectin. Her work had just begun. She knew she had to fight to ensure the cure reached everyone who needed it. The daunting bureaucracy and the powerful pharmaceutical industry stood in her way, but she was ready. One day, as she was working in her study, her daughter came in with a drawing. It was a portrait of Liz standing tall, a light shining from her. Below it, her daughter had written, My Mum, the Hero. Tears welled up in Liz's eyes as she embraced her daughter. Her fight had started with her children, and now they were a constant reminder of why she had to continue. She wasn't just fighting for herself, she was fighting for everyone who had been unknowingly subdued by the parasite. The world she had stumbled upon was finally starting to make more sense, and she was going to make sure it turned into a world where every mind could thrive in its full potential. In this, Liz found her purpose, her cause, her raison d'etre. With renewed determination, she walked over to her desk and began to write. This was just the beginning of her story, the story of a parasite and the woman who dared to challenge it.